Hiya, Duncan Green here with the latest roundup of posts on from poverty to power. It's all a bit all over the place at the moment because I'm doing a lot of traveling for the um, uh, Executive Leadership Initiative Geli course that I'm teaching. I was in Panama last week. Great to be back in Latin America. Um, and I'm heading off to Nairobi uh, next uh, on Saturday, so um, uh, soon after you get this. And uh, so it's been a bit hard to keep the blog going. Um, but I'm rounding up in the last couple of weeks and uh, come come October I should be back full-time blogging and I aim to spend a lot more put a lot more energy into it and get it get it really buzzing okay so <clears throat> first blog on the timeline was links I liked there are a few crackers here Tom Baker um, whose uh, Twitter acronym is uh, thoughtful campaigner had timeless tips for any campaigner really nice list I think my favorite was avoid being a missionary or a martyr I think that's um, very good in terms of how you pitch yourself you know the, the, the people tend to go to they don't tend to struggle to put themselves in the minds of the people who are hearing them and therefore adopt persona persona that are quite off-putting and I thought that was a good observation a uh, nice little bit of a uh, nice little first Universal Corporation Limited, a Kenyan pharmaceutical company, became the first African manufacturer to get pre-qualification from the World Health Organization for a key anti-malarial drug. So that's kind of spread of pharmaceutical knowledge and manufacturing to Africa. Then a really nice piece by Heba Ali of New, New Humanitarian, 10 efforts to decolonize aid. And the nice thing about this was that it was a practical list of what people are actually doing. You know, usually there's a lot of blame and a lot of guilt and a lot of sort of, um, you know, um, hair shirtism. Uh, and this is Heber Ali um, actually spotting some of the good things. And I was delighted to see that Oxfam's involved in several of them. One of my favorite writers on development, Branko Milanovic, had a really nice piece on Mikhail Gorbachev. Um, so Mikhail, uh, Branko writes about everything. He doesn't just write about um, about uh, international development. By the standards of statecraft, he must be judged harshly as one of the most extraordinary failures in history. By the standards of humanity, he must be judged much more kindly. So Branko is a, a Serb, grew up in Yugoslavia, part of the, part of the uh, Soviet bloc, um, and I think he's uniquely placed to... Um, to, to write about uh, Gorbachev as a historic figure. Uh, but I also put a link to the Pizza Hut advert, which everybody was circulating, where Gorbachev, you know, was down short of money, ended up having to take part in a Pizza Hut advert in in Russia, which just encapsulated so many things about the, the transition from communism to capitalism that, um, and, you know, how the mighty have fallen. And it was just a fantastic metaphor for everything that happened in Russia in the 1990s. Next post was, the humanitarian system is on the edge of the abyss. Where next? So Juliet Parker, who's director of ALNAP, the Active Learning Network for Accountability and Performance in Humanitarian Action, um, was summarizing their new State of the Humanitarian System report, 2022, so they do this every year. And they start off with a, with a quite powerful quote from uh, Antonio Guterres, the, uh, the UN Secretary General. I am here to sound the alarm, the world must wake up. We are on the edge of an abyss and moving in the wrong direction. Well, that, yeah, it reminds me of an old joke. We are on the edge of an abyss and we're about to take a, grand, a great step forward. Um, and that's more or less what Guterres is saying. 
and that was him speaking to the General Assembly in September 2021. The State of the Humanitarian System report is the longest running evidence base on the performance of the humanitarian system. Drawing together four years of analysis and data, the report sets out what we know about where the humanitarian sector is making progress and where it is not. The challenges facing humanitarians are significant and set to increase. Here are some of the main trends we've seen over the past four years. So my, my bad, it's not, a, it's not an annual, it's every four years. So this makes this even more significant. Demand for humanitarian assistance has increased significantly. This is for four main reasons. Conflicts and COVID, the rise of hunger, crises becoming more protracted in the absence of political leadership, for example, Yemen and Syria, and the humanitarian system increased the number of people it was trying to reach and the kinds of services it offers them. So UN coordinated appeals tried to reach an estimated 136 million people in 2018, nearly doubled to 255 million people in 2021. So trying to do more. The system has expanded to meet this demand. So in terms of the amount of money, the numbers of organizations and in-country staff, it's bigger than ever. International humanitarian assistance reached an estimated 31 billion in 2021, almost doubling in the last decade. The number of humanitarian staff working in crisis contexts has increased 40% since 2013 to around 632,000 people. I found that quite surprising, very high. 90% of them were nationals of the countries in which they worked. As demand for humanitarian assistance rose, humanitarians faced pushback from states and international support for humanitarian norms declined, making it harder to reach those most in need. Deepening tensions between Russia, China and the West affected the ability of the multilateral system to address climate change, resolve conflicts and uphold international law. And at the really grisly end of this, attacks on aid workers rose by 54% between 2017 and 2020, with national staff accounting for 95% of the victims of these attacks in 2020. So disproportionate um, hits on national staff. Resources and effort are heavily concentrated in a very small group of donors, agencies and countries. Almost half of humanitarian assistance comes from the top five donors and by 2021, 31% came from the USA alone, making this support vulnerable to changes in government. Who could they be thinking of? Or foreign policy? Almost half of humanitarian assistance goes to three UN agencies, World Food Programme, UNHCR on refugees and UNICEF on children. Much of this is then passed on to other agencies. And meanwhile, despite the commitments made to support localization at the World Humanitarian Summit in 2016, the proportion of funding to local and national actors actually fell from 3.3% in 2018 to 1.2% in 2021, dismal. And the posts later in the week came back to that, that subject. When data is available, we can see that humanitarian aid is generally effective at achieving positive outcomes for people in crisis. Cash programming in the food security and nutrition sectors provided good evidence for this. But when you ask aid recipients, they told us the humanitarian system should be assessed by whether aid goes to the right people and how much voice they have in decisions that affect them. Decisions about who gets aid remain unclear to people in crisis. And in several contexts, the traditional humanitarian principle of providing aid only to those most in need runs against cultural practices 
of sharing resources across a family or a community. To sum it up, the State of the Humanitarian System report paints two pictures. One, where the work of the global humanitarian system is being undermined by a fractured, conflict-ridden international community, making it increasingly difficult to get assistance to those who need it. And another of a system with long-established funding models and ways of working struggling to navigate the changes it needs to become more agile, more locally led, and able to anticipate and adapt to increasing numbers of climate-related disasters and long-term protracted crises. That is a fairly gloomy summary, but I think it sounds pretty accurate to me. Next post was by Oxfam's Amy Croom, reporting back on a, uh, a big conference. I'm not a big fan of conference reports on blogs. They can be a bit of a snooze, but I thought this one was really good. It's called Locked Out. What do local leaders say about reforming the humanitarian system? So we're back into that issue of localization rather than top-down humanitarian relief. What happens when, Amy asks, when you bring together local activists and organizations to discuss how to reform the humanitarian system? I recently found out attending a conference where more than 85% of the speakers and moderators were from national and local organizations, compared to not even 10% at the European Humanitarian Forum. In five panel discussions and four learning labs over the course of two days, over 500 people from around the world discussed new financial models, refugee leadership, women's leadership, and transforming the humanitarian system. Here are my top takeaways. One, being inclusive is a lot harder than it looks, but in the long term can radically alter the balance of power within humanitarianism. Listening to the panel discussions of women and refugee leaders showed how the systemic and structural issues in humanitarian response are interwoven and the importance of connecting to development and human rights work. Isikeli Vulavu, CEO of the Pacific Gender and Diversity Network, when asked about what needs to change to have more LGBTIQ plus leaders in the humanitarian system, replied, general acceptance. Going on to explain how humanitarians operate with the acceptance, consent and coordination with community leaders, village leaders and elders. And that when these leaders and the communities they represent do not have general acceptance of LGBTQI plus people, there is no space for these people within the humanitarian system. Implications? If we're serious about inclusivity, we may have to invest seriously in shifting norms, which is a long-term, complex and difficult, but unavoidable. I'll come back to that in a minute. And lots of other interesting new ideas, many interesting new ideas for how to improve the humanitarian system were brought to the table by local leaders. Too many to list here, but let me pick one highlight. Instead of having different agencies, INGOs, and then local actors subcontracted to work on, say, education in IDP, displaced people camps, in a given humanitarian context, why not choose one local organisation to the, be the lead for the sector across a given area, perhaps in partnership with the existing system of lead international actors? Bai Padaman, Guru Paporo of Marawi CSO Convergence Group, argue this would make coordination simpler, avoid duplication and would increase accountability. So it would be easy, for example, to ask, are WASH provisions meeting people's needs? If not, speak to the TT Foundation as well as Oxfam, which often leads on WASH, water and sanitation and hygiene. Next point of Amy's, having a majority world event is fundamentally different. This summit is an answer to our prayers, said by Padaman Guru Paporo of Marawi CSO Convergence Group again. While in, whilst in the opening ceremony, Dr. Puji 
Pugiano said he wished he had had such an event and group to guide him while acting in a leadership role within the grand bargain, which is one of the big humanitarian discussions, as he felt he was standing on a cloud in those conversations. Idris Dar, director of Wazda in Kenya, and there are links to all these um, uh, organizations, and Somalia says, due to financial constraints, local actors do not have the opportunity to learn from others. International partners do not allow their partners into their systems to learn for reasons that are not clear to me. Even local actors in the same locality don't cross-learn due to high competition for scarce resources. So Amy says she has so much respect for long-term localization advocates. If I am starting to tire of these common rallying calls, how must local actor feel, actors feel talking about localization over and over again? Angelina Nyajima Simondial, Executive Director of Hope Restoration in South Sudan, worries that the localization discussion is being used by everyone to further their own agenda. And for local actors, it is primarily about increasing their funds. But who can blame them given just that 1.2% of humanitarian funding reaching local actors directly? And there's no global or national reporting against the grand, grand bargain pledge of 25%, so nearly 20 times as much. Uh, should be going to them as directly as possible. Some of the most powerful interventions came from refugee leaders. Jean-Paul Kisaka, vice chair of the African Refugee Network, summarised some of the core issues when he said, we are being locked out, and that's the title Amy used for her piece. How can we work together with our big brothers? Refugee leaders are trusted as incentive workers, as some contractors, but why not as consortium partners? Nor can your poor of the Karen, uh, Karen sorry, women's organization in Myanmar, asked about accountability issues of refugee-led organizations, replied that they are responsive to their communities, to the people around them, to displaced people and refugees, and are therefore arguably much more accountable than, say, UNHCR. And she asked, who are they really accountable to? The virtual summit was organized by Kefford Aganda, Uganda, sorry, Deprosk, Nepal, and opened by Dr. Puji Pujano and supported by Oxfam. And there'll be you know, a report of the event online later. Next post was about cities, a much neglected topic, I think, in development. We have this kind of rural, uh, romantic relationship with rural peasantry and rural livelihoods. But you know, most people now live in cities, even in the developing world. And here's Nicola Nixon and Tamara Fehler from the Asia Foundation and Rebecca Calder from Corey Global introducing some ideas for making cities more inclusive in Southeast Asia. In the shadow of COVID-19, rapid urbanization is exacerbating existing inequalities and creating new ones that dramatically reduce the quality of life of people who are marginalized. Three examples, persons with disabilities face multiple barriers in navigating poorly designed infrastructure, burdensome travel times to access the basic services they need, and limited options for decent employment, even when they can overcome the discriminatory social norms that devalue their presence and participation in public life. Recent campaigns to address women's safety on public transport in Indonesia, the Philippines, Thailand and elsewhere are just a small part of the solution to the levels of sexual harassment and intimidation perpetrated by men on women, girls and those of minority genders in cities throughout the region. The urban poor, including informal workers, ethnic minorities, and a rising number of migrants, frequently find themselves in settlements that are physically excluded from the opportunities and services of urban centers. 
When people do think and advocate on these issues, they're often physically and intellectually worlds away from the decision makers in the offices of municipal authorities and their public and private sector counterparts, whose views are often most powerful in shaping the future city. Over the past six months, the Asia Foundation has contributed to bridging that gap by host a, hosting a series of carefully facilitated discussions called the Inclusive Cities Dialogues. And there's a, a link to um, much more detail about those, involving a diverse group of local government and non-government representatives from across 14 of Southeast Asia's secondary cities. So that's interesting. It's, that, it's the secondary cities and not, not, not the big capitals. What we learned. There is energy for more inclusive change. Despite resource and capacity challenges, there are reform champions in municipal authorities who want to do more to address inequities in their cities. Despite closing civic spaces in many parts of the region, civil society organisations are implementing creative initiatives to provide employment opportunities, address public safety issues and contribute to urban infrastructure planning. In several cities, government and non-government actors are working together productively, whether on policies, budget allocations or pilot programmes. We heard examples of universities providing data for local planning in Semarang, which I presume is in Indonesia, civil society working with government in Phnom Penh in Cambodia on better data collection and greater cross-sectoral collaboration to reduce gender-based violence in Penang, Malaysia. This reform momentum is an opportunity. But prejudicial norms and values are the number one barrier. Participants in the dialogues were a one voice on this point. Concrete barriers are significant, whether transport, financial or otherwise. Yet when addressing these barriers, transformation or impact will only be achieved if negative attitudes, norms and values towards women and gender minorities, persons with disabilities and other marginalised groups such as migrants and the urban poor also change. Heads up, guys. Norms. You just hear it more and more you know, over my period in development. It's just gone up and up and up and changing social norms is something we all, you, know, you hear more and more, we all agree it's really important. The people who've done most on it are probably the, um, the gender equity um, uh, organisers. There are some really interesting pieces of research and work about how to do this, but it's tiny in volume compared to things like livelihoods, infrastructure, accountability. I think norm change is just a massive one. Real challenges for monitoring evaluation. It takes ages. It's very hard to measure. Um, it's absolutely critical. So I think norm change, if you're looking for a, a topic to get stuck into, norm change for me has got to be right up there. And uh, it was mentioned at the top of the humanitarian post as well, the one I read out uh, just before. Back to the post. Um, there are significant gaps between words and deeds. In some cities, policy frameworks now exist that encourage mainstream of inclusion, as well as dedicated efforts to support and empower specific groups. But resources for implementation are limited, and much on-the-ground programming still depends on NGO projects, which, while of great value individually, leads to fragmentation, lack of coordination, and missed opportunities. Next point. There are few comprehensive or intersectional approaches to inclusion. Most efforts to improve access in urban areas tend to focus on specific identity groups, leaving little opportunity for collective voice on inclusion more broadly, or awareness of compounded disadvantage among planners, policymakers, and respective interest groups. Next post. So that was really good. And the, the, the summary paragraph was, when the dominant paradigm for urban development in Southeast Asia is smart cities and smart is conflated with high tech 
and the seduction of digital solutions, these very personal and complex aspects of city life tend to get lost. True that. And the last post was from me. I've been kind of, you know, I, I, I think I need to get back to doing a bit more of this, which is just musing and rambling on the blog. It's something I really like doing. I've kind of been, it's been squeezed out just by the pressure of work on these UN projects and other things. But this was, I, I realized that a topic had kept coming up in conversations, which was imposter syndrome. So I had a little um, ramble about imposter syndrome, got lots of comments. It turns out it struck a chord with people. So here it is. Imposter syndrome, doubting your abilities and feeling like a fraud. Almost everyone has it, even old lags like me. Just because I've become relaxed about banging on in front of an audience doesn't mean I've stopped living in fear of someone pointing at me and saying, you don't really know what you're talking about, do you? Luckily, the only people who actually do that, at least out loud, are my wife and kids, and they are usually right. My students raise it. So do colleagues, usually with a wry smile of recognition of a shared malaise. Why write about it? Because in heavy doses, it can incapacitate people, draining them of self-belief, blinding them to their own capacities and potential, and preventing them from seizing opportunities to learn, do good things and expand their horizons. It means you devalue or fail to celebrate your achievements through the closely related Groucho Marx syndrome, which is, you know, I wouldn't want to be a member of any club that would have me. If you can do it, it can't be worth much. Curving imposter syndrome can open the door to a bit more self-awareness, where you realise when you know when you're talking about, but you also know when you're on thin ice and are confident enough to let others know that and ask them or yourself whether it's time to stop and ask for help. What about later career people like me, reasonably established with long CVs and at least a veneer of self-confidence? There, I think, allowing yourself to feel like an imposter can actually be healthy. Embrace it, because it reminds you that you don't know everything. In fact, you don't know very much. If a memento mori is a reminder of the inevitability of death, maybe we need a memento impostoris. I just made that up. Uh, I never did Latin. To remind us of fallibility and error, a form of evidence-based humility. Standing on the shoulders of giants could be a form of that, but it's always struck me as an early form of Newtonian humble bragging. Acknowledging your own insecurities and doubts, along with my old favourite TSD, tactical self-deprecation, can also be a way of redressing imbalances of power between the expat and the national worker in the aid business or between prof and student in, in a university. And of course, it's highly gendered. Over the years, I've noticed that women sometimes email me with a comment on a blog post, blog post saying, I didn't want to post this. Not sure I know enough. Never men. And sure enough, I've had an email from a colleague saying, really enjoyed your post. Just didn't want to leave a comment. Didn't 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 feel safe. So, you know, it's still going on out there. Senior women still still being hobbled by the uh, imposter syndrome. The syndrome's origins lie in trying to understand the challenges faced by women leaders, as this 2021 piece in the Harvard Business Review points out. Psychologists Pauline Rose Clance and Suzanne Imes developed the concept originally termed imposter phenomenon in their 1978 founding study which focused on high-achieving women. They posited that despite outstanding academic and professional accomplishments, women who experience the imposter phenomenon persist in believing that they're really not bright and have fooled any, everyone, anyone who thinks otherwise. 
Their findings spurred decades of thought leadership programs and initiatives to address imposter syndrome in women. Even famous women from Hollywood superstars such as Charlize Theron and Viola Davis to business leaders such as Sheryl Sandberg and even former First Lady Michelle Obama and Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor have confessed to experiencing it. Now, interestingly, the authors of that piece, Ruchika Tulshian and Jodianne Buri, argue that imposter, imposter syndrome is actually structural. And there's a problem about making it an individual thing and providing kind of individual coaching to get over it. Imposter syndrome puts the blame on individuals without accounting for the historical and cultural contexts that are foundational to how it manifests in both women of colour and white women. Imposter syndrome directs our view towards fixing women at work instead of fixing the places where women work. They see men as shedding the syndrome as they progress in their careers. I'm not so sure, based on n equals one, my personal experience, while it continues to hold women back. And they think labelling it may even be counterproductive in individualising what should be a structural discussion. And overall, I guess I'm arguing for just the right level of imposter syndrome, ensuring that you remain open to error, learning new things and appreciating the wisdom of others without being paralysed by self-doubt. A productive tension between doubt and action. That's a tough balance to strike, but I think it's the most productive one. I also think it evolves over time during your career. I think, you know, my advice to students is don't let your doubts grind you down. Trust yourself and your peers. Jump in. The water is generally lovely. Feel the fear and do it anyway. Get past it. It's hard to do, but building supportive networks, finding a safe space to take risks and build confidence, whether in public speaking, public speaking, writing or whatever, can help. And I guess university sort of plays that role of safe space for many even if it's unacknowledged. Teachers need to be part of building that safe space, obviously. As you go on in your career, I think imposter syndrome can be an antidote to false certainties. Embrace it, along with uncertainty and ambiguity. If it feels like it's damaging your self-confidence too much, just look at those around you. See who shares the syndrome and draw comfort from that. And then, of course, you only have to look at colleagues who appear to have shaken off their imposter syndromes altogether to see how quickly that turns into the kind of deaf arrogance that, give, that can give veterans, whether in aid or academia, a bad name. And of course, this may all be a bit of a British malaise, except that lots of non-Brit students have told me the same. OK, I think that's enough from me for one week. Have a great weekend or week, and I'll be back after Nairobi uh, with lots more posts and lots more of these podcasts. Thanks very much. Bye.